Beautifully done, Mr. Bonner. Um, at this time, all children ages uh, pre-K through first grade are welcome to follow Miss Erin Meyer, if, uh, if you'd like to, to Children's Church. As we uh, look at God's Word this morning, we'll be looking at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 4, and it's not, do not let the uh, fact that we're covering two different chapters intimidate you, it's uh, not that large of a portion of scripture, and I will point out that our divisions, our chapter divisions within the Bible are a bit arbitrary. Uh, they originally, the book of Jeremiah, as well as other books, were originally written without chapters, and so it is a, con a concise and um, thematic unit that we're going to be exploring together. So let's look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 4. Hear God's word. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will hear your, heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God's word, let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God and that you have spoken. And we thank you even as we have spent the last few minutes worshiping in your presence, invited by you to come before your throne and to extol and uplift your great name, that likewise you invite us to cry out to you, to give ear to your word and to allow your word to be productive and fruitful and transformative in our lives. And we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us hearts to understand, that you would be with my feeble lips, that they could articulate the truth of your word, that your word would not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you purpose. And we pray this, O oh God, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. There is a great love that is far deeper than anything we can possibly imagine that is really incomprehensible that permeates the passage of Scripture that I just read this morning. It is in the context of this great love that we hear the very heart of God. And as I was reflecting on this passage this week and the week prior, I was reminded of all things of moths. I don't know if you've ever been sitting on your porch or perhaps outside in the summertime when moths are flying around, but if you've ever noticed at night, moths have a tendency, a weakness, for flying around artificial light. And I've always been curious why this is, and I took some time to research it, and according to scientists, they theorized that moths and other insects actually use the moon as a primary reference point and are able to calibrate their flight paths as the earth rotates. So the moon ultimately causes them to know where to go. It's the way that's their compass, if you will, their navigational mechanism. And so bright lights, like our porch lights, like our car lights, etc., have a way of disorienting them so that uh, as they perceive the light, they move towards the light, and then they're captivated by the light, and they're not able to move beyond it. The more I studied and did some research on these little critters, I realized that uh, just like us, they, uh, they have a hard time transitioning once they've been in a very bright room and they walk into a, a dark place. If you've ever had that experience, which most of us have, you know that it's a challenge to go from a very bright room into darkness. It takes a while for your eyes to adjust. Well, for moths, that period of time is even longer. And so if you've ever looked at a, a moth, observed them as they fly around in artificial light, and you say, well, why don't they just fly away? Why don't they just keep flying around it in circles? That's one reason why. Because the fear of flying away from the light and being inundated by darkness without the quick transition uh, enabling them to see is something that they're just unwilling in their little moth minds uh, to do. Well, as I contemplated this, and as I read the passage, I believe that what we just read is really an expression of how all of us can be like those moths, particularly for Israel, for Judah. Here, as we saw in this text, we had this litany, and scholars believe that it's a litany, it's a prayer of confession that unfortunately was never prayed. Because if you put this text in the context of the chapters that precede it, we know that Israel and Judah, the people of God, chosen by God to live for him, to be a separate community in all the earth, to manifest his dominion rule in the earth, that they ultimately had allowed sin, they had made concessions, and they had given into behavior that was an abomination in the sight of God. And so God led the northern kingdom into captivity. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army came and conquered northern Israel. And Judah unfortunately, did not take a lesson, and they continued also in similar sin and apostasy. And so God, through the mouth of Jeremiah, gives this ideal prayer of repentance, this ideal prayer of confession. And he paints this hypothetical scenario and says, I hear a voice on the bare heights, and it's Israel, it's Judah, it's my people recovering repentance. So the title of the morning sermon, Recapturing Repentance, 
I think that uh, for all of us as we contemplate this text and hopefully as we take time to look at uh, three different scenarios or three different aspects of repentance, that we will have a better appreciation for the moth because far too often we are like the moth flying around a surrogate light instead of allowing the light of God's life to lead us and to guide us. But let's look at the text and first we're going to endeavor to answer three primary questions. One, what's so bad about sin? If the text that we just read is a dialogue straight from the heart of God, straight from this incomprehensible love, and if you've noticed there's a pattern actually to this text, Israel speaks in verse 21 and then in verse 22, the first part of it, God speaks. Israel speaks again in verse 22 uh, through verse 25, and then God speaks in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, and then again in uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. So there's this dialogue, this back and forth between God, the very heart of God, and His people. Unfortunately, it is an illustrative one. It is one that may be idealized but never took place. And so we arrive at... Uh, this text, and we have to ask the question, which ultimately is a very important one, that is, what is so bad about sin? If you are new to Christianity, if you're new to the church, perhaps even this morning as we spent time in preparing our hearts for worship and confessing our sin, you may have been a bit puzzled, and you may have asked the question, why are we as Christians obsessed with sin? What is so bad about sin? After all, we live in an age where sin is nonchalantly used as an adjective for pleasure. If it's utterly sinful, it's also utterly pleasurable. At least that's the connotation in the eyes of the world of much of those who do not believe in God. And so why is God and the Bible obsessed with the harmfulness of sin? Well, quite simply, sin, according to Scripture is a failure to conform or a transgression of the righteous law of God. It's a very simple definition. We're going to take some time and explore it a bit more. R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic rebellion. It is all of us as mankind seeking to usurp the throne of God and exert or exalt our own selves on that throne. But the portrait of sin that is portrayed here in the text is a very vivid one, and I think for all intents and purposes, it is much more potent, much more accurate, perhaps perceptible uh, than the two definitions I just gave. Look at verse 21. It says, A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. So in Hebrew, the phrase that's translated perverted their way actually literally means they've distorted their path. So sin, at least the way that it is explained here in this beautiful litany of confession, is a perverted path. If all of us were made for one reason, and we were, we believe the Bible teaches that we were made to bring God glory. We were made in God's image, in God's likeness. And he ordained a path for us to walk. But Proverbs tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And so our own perverted way is the way that we are naturally inclined to walk. Sin, we are born, according to Psalms 51, in sin, and in sin did our mother conceive us. So we are born, all of us, walking a perverted path. 
Now, how is that perversion exemplified here in the text? Well, we have to take time to explore the context of Jeremiah's day because Israel, as well as Judah, was an agricultural society, an agrarian society. And even though they were told that God created them and that ultimately God made all things and he made all things for his glory and that ultimately he sustains and gives life to every living thing, they were surrounded by other agricultural society, uh, societies, other agrarian societies that had these built-in mechanisms for ensuring successful crops. One of those mechanisms were what they call fertility cults. They would find a bare hill. They would find some place out in the open, particularly one that was elevated. They would cut down the trees. They, erect, they would erect an image to some fertility god or goddess. And they would perform rituals that usually involved some type of sexual promiscuity. And they did so in hopes that their actions would guarantee a good harvest. Now, if they looked around them to the cultures surrounding them, this was perfectly acceptable. It's how you did business in their world. You wouldn't think of finding a crop without having a fertility ritual. You wouldn't think of living as a farmer without having a hill dedicated to this fertility cult. And really, we are tempted to say, if you want to put this cult in comparison in light of the other atrocious things that Israel was doing at the time. After all, they had erected a, an idol to Baal in the temple in Jerusalem. They'd done a few other things. And so you might look at this and say, well, after all, they're hedging their bets. You know, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the big thing. But it's precisely this that God chooses to focus on. Idolatry that is at the heart of their economics. Idolatry that is at the heart of their means of not only getting wealth, but providing for their family. And so our text begins that a voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. I don't know if you remember that Mother Goose nursery rhyme about the crooked man. I remember it as a boy because I was always fascinated by a picture that I saw in a book of this man with his crooked cat. You know the one I'm talking about. There was a crooked man. He walked a crooked mile. He bought a crooked cat, which caught a crooked mouse, and they all lived together in their crooked little house. Well, to the crooked, nothing is straight. And I remember thinking, how could you have that much crookedness? Jeremiah was not writing to unbelievers. Jeremiah was writing to the people of God. You might say the backslidden people of God. He was not writing to the unbelieving world. He was writing to the church. And as Christian members of the community of the redeemed, we often walk in a crooked way. We become so engrossed in the culture around us that because the culture thinks it unfathomable that you have a business or that you live a life that doesn't incorporate this fertility cult, that somehow you're just not human. All of us, Israel, ancient Israel, as well as you and I, are like the moth, hopelessly trapped in the glow of a bright light, thinking we are going somewhere, when in reality we are encircling an artificial navigator that will take us far off course and that will lead to our own demise. That's what sin is. It is a perversion of the way. 
It is a way that may seem right, but ultimately it is a way of death and destruction. But the work of reconciliation, the work of God in and through his people, the work that he has called us to do seeks to find this distortedness of sin in every aspect of our lives and to make it straight. That's what repentance is all about. Now, there are three ways, according to this text, that the severity of sin is portrayed. The first is that sin is deceptive. Verse 23 says, we hear this comment, truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. In other words, when God says, I want a confession from my people, it begins with an accurate acknowledgement of the deceitfulness of sin. God's people are acknowledging that they have done something which in the economy of God is irrational, it's forbidden. It may be acceptable by the standards of the world in which they live, but it is forbidden by their creator. They have been deceived. These orgies on the mountains that had at their heart promiscuity and prostitution, these orgies that they ultimately felt they had to engage because they wanted a successful crop, Israel realizes we've been deceived. When we want to do business the way the world does business, we are deceived. And so they acknowledge that the popular procedures of the day have left them wanting. They acknowledge that the way that everyone is doing it leaves them empty. And even though Yahweh forbade these practices, even though the God of the covenant, the God of the Bible forbade these practices, his people struggled to imagine a world in which such practices did not contribute to their success. God wants his people to remember that he is their provider and that they should look to him and him alone. So one reason why sin is such a big deal, one reason why ultimately that sin is grievous is because it is deceptive. It is deceitful, it deceives, it is deceptive. Secondly, we see that sin is costly. Verse 24 says, But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers have labored, their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. They have been devoured. It is the nature of sin to devour. Like a cancer, it grows uninhibited. It destroys everything and everyone in its path. I read this past week, that the state of Arizona is pursuing measures to try to make pornography a public health issue in the state because of the destructive impact that it is having, not only on the economy, but also in the effect, in the lives, the effect, its effect on the lives of men and women. Sin is costly. Sin will cost you more than you can possibly pay. And Israel, in their moment of confession, in this ideal state of confessing to God, admits that they have been deceived and that ultimately everything that former generations worked for has been devoured. That their sons and their daughters are in captivity. That they themselves are on the brink of destruction. In the context of history, what happened was Babylon came and destroyed and decimated the city that they thought was indestructible and laid bare the very temple where God said, I will meet with you. And so sin is costly. 
Third, sin brings shame. In verse 25, it says, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. Now, shame is not a popular word. In fact, there are many who consider shame to be an archaic carryover of our puritanical past. However, listen to these statistics. Between 1950 and 1999, a period of significant growth in the economy in the United States, probably one of the most significant periods of growth in our economy. Suicide among people under the age of 24 increased by 137%. In 2013, 30.2% .2 of men and 16% of women aged 12 and older reported binge drinking in the past month. 17.3 million Americans reported alcohol addiction or serious problems related to alcohol use. We may suppress it. We may try to cover it up. We may want to ignore it. But the reality is that sin brings shame. Now, according to Barna, one of the same groups that just provided the statistics that I quoted, they released a study in 2016 that says that Christians, unfortunately, have not fared much better than our unbelieving neighbors. According to this report 59% of Christians who are actively engaged in church and the definition for being actively engaged is that they attend weekly. Now that's extraordinary in this day and age. But according to the study three years ago 59% of Christians who are actively engaged in church are likely to have cohabited or are cohabiting currently with an unmarried partner. 35% of evangelicals in 2016 support homosexual marriage. Ten years before in 2006, that was 14%. So you can debate the accuracy of these statistics. You can debate the extent to which we ourselves are influenced by the culture around us. But the truth remains that we too have our bare hills. We too have our cults. We, too, allow the standard of the world to determine what is morally apprehensible or morally acceptable in our own ranks. So, if this is the case, if this is why sin is such a big deal, what is repentance? Well, in this hashtag MeToo era, repentance is often portrayed as simply admitting that you did wrong and saying you're sorry. But scripture paints a completely different view. According to our text, repentance is portrayed this way. God tells Israel in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. So the first part of that verse, of verse 1 may seem a bit vague, but it follows verse 25 of the previous chapter, which says, We have sinned against the Lord our God. We, our fathers, from our youth even to this day. It's a confession, an acknowledgment of guilt, which in and of itself is the first step in repentance, but is not repentance. 
It is possible to confess and turn, but not turn to God. True repentance is not simply acknowledging one's sin, but turning to God. And turning to God entails at least three things. One, removing the detestable things. We see that here in these verses. The detestable things, no doubt, were the images, the paraphernalia that were used in the fertility cults. Things that would have been everyday objects in the world in which they live. Things that would have been probably sewed at the local dime store because of their abundance in the society. Things that were easily not only obtainable, but easily justified as simply part of living in that culture. God doesn't simply say, put them away. But there's an implication here that they are to be detested. Not simply a verbal acknowledgement that, oh yes, I did wrong, I'm sorry, but an attitude of the heart that says, that which was the object of my affections I now detest because I see that it has perverted my way. It is so easy for all of us to go halfway there, but repentance is never halfway there. It's easy for us to say, I'm sorry. It's easy for us even to say at times, yes, you're right, I sinned. After all, in a culture where even a speeding ticket can be easily expunged from your record. Sin doesn't seem to be that bad. But to detest that which God detests is at the heart of biblical repentance. Removing the allegiance of that thing from our heart. Circumcising the heart, as God says in verse 4 of chapter 4, which is a removal of the foreskin. I'm not going to go into all the detail, but you get the picture. It's painful. It's cutting something away. Secondly, God says repentance entails not wavering. Often, despite our best intentions, we continue habitual sins. We continue falling into the same pattern. We waver. We look around us. We want to judge our actions based on the gravity of other people's actions instead of allowing God's word to speak truth to our lives. After all, the surrounding culture thinks it's unimaginable that we would have a crop without a fertility cult. And so, why are we the only ones not going to the party? Why are we the only ones who refuse to participate? The tendency to waver can only be addressed in one way. This is how God addresses it. In the first part of verse 3, he says, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. What's fallow ground? It's ground that hasn't been sown. It's ground that lies dormant, that has become hardened on the outside, when underneath there is the potential, provided that the exterior veneer can be cracked, There's potential for the nutrients in the soil to be turned so that the sunlight and the rain can make that soil fertile. And God tells Israel, plow up your fallow ground. Do not sow among thorns. True repentance entails doing the hard work of tillage so that the seed of the Spirit can fall on fertile soil. Third, Repentance includes sincere confession 
that the Lord lives. Now, anyone can confess that the Lord lives. In fact, the same statistical research that I just quoted said that the majority of, well, still the overwhelming majority of Americans believe in God. The statistics that I quoted did not survey the population at large. They surveyed the population that was self-professing evangelical. So confessing that the Lord lives is, to some extent, inconsequential, unless you confess the Lord lives in truth and sincerity. And that's how God defines true repentance. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 7, 21. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, true repentance is confession that is accompanied by action. Now, I have two sons whom I love dearly. One of them is at the age, and those of you who have sons, you will understand what I'm about to say. Those of you who have had sons in the past hopefully can identify as well. One is at the age where we're really trying to discourage potty talk. If you don't know what potty talk is, ask me, and I'll tell you what potty talk is. But we're really trying to discourage it. And one of my sons came up to me one day, and he said, Dad, he said, I'm, it's, it's hard for me to repent. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm really sorry when I talk potty talk, but it's just so enjoyable that I know I'm going to do it again. <laughs> From the mouth of babes. I told my wife I think my son understands repentance better than many of us do. Because true repentance is confession that is accompanied by action. So what's at stake? If we've seen why sin is such a big deal, and if we have seen in this text what true repentance looks like, what's at stake? Well, in the context of uh, Jeremiah's message, if you were to read the rest of the book of Jeremiah, even the chapters that immediately precede this one, you might expect him to say, if you don't repent, the Babylonians are coming. But that was too narrow of a view. What's at stake is something much larger. In fact, other places, Jeremiah did prophesy that the Babylonians are coming, and come they did. However, what God addresses here in chapter 4, in verse 2, he says, If you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. What is at stake ultimately in the life of God's people, and please hear me when I say this because it comes from God's word, it comes from a deep place of love on the part of God for his people. When the people of God refuse to maintain a lifestyle of repentance, what is at stake is the testimony and the relevance of the church in the world. See, our mission as the church is to be a prophetic voice. Our mission as the church is not only to proclaim the truth, but to live the truth, to show the world what it looks like to live under the dominion and the authority of God. And so what is at stake when we do not recover a lifestyle of repentance is we lose our relevance in the world. We lose our relevance in our home. We lose our relevance in the workplace. 
we lose our relevance in society. Now, whenever I say we lose our relevance, let me go back and say that God is doing something in the earth that is greater than you and me, but yet it's not separate from you and me. It is greater than any one individual, but it includes every individual within the body of Christ. And so even though I don't think that it's biblically true to say that God needs you to do his work of redemption, what I do know is that the Bible has called us all to a ministry of reconciliation. And the only way that we can truly exemplify the ministry of reconciliation as Christians to the observing world around us is if when the rest of the world says, how could you plant a crop without a fertility cult? We say, because we know the one who makes all things grow. Now, let me put this in very practical terms. We live in a day and age where really there are two spectrums, two polar opposite ends of a spectrum within Christianity. There's the spectrum that says the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What role do we have to play but to sit in our homes to surround ourselves with like-minded people and do nothing? And then there's the other end of the spectrum that ultimately says things are changing. If we don't change with them, then we will lose our relevance, our effectiveness in society. The Bible looks at both ends of the spectrum and says, you're wrong. The mission to which God has called his people is to be salt and light to the world that we live in. We cannot, for the sake of Christ's sufferings, we cannot sit back and do nothing. However, the greatest testimony that we can leave to those who know us is not just that we say all the right things, but ultimately that we are a people who are contrite, we are a people who have recaptured repentance. Not that we're a people that get it right every single day all the time, because none of us do, but that we are a people that when we realize that it has become part of our habitual lifestyle to participate in this fertility cult, and I'm using that as in a way of analogy, you fill in the blank. When we become a people who change in a decade, our view of scripture to say that what was once is forbidden is now acceptable, as we have done according to the Barna survey, then we lose our relevance to society because ultimately we have forsaken our God. That's what's at stake. Now, a couple things. What's, what hope do we have? One thing I've observed going back to our analogy with the moth one thing I've observed about moths, and I actually stumbled on this observation. I have a, a light over my kitchen sink that has a window immediately outside of it, and I've left that light on a few times, several times actually, when I go to bed at night. And one thing I've observed is that somehow spiders have picked up on the idea that moths get trapped around light. I don't know if they have a little spider-gram that they send to all their friends and they say, hey, there's a light over here, let's build a web or what, but I noticed after a couple of nights of leaving the light on that I got up the next morning and there was a spider web that was spanning the entire back portion of where the nightlight was. And, and 
Of course, right in the middle of the spider web, there was a moth. Sin is deceitful. Sin is destructive. Sin is grievous to the heart of God. And the worst thing that we can do is to fail to acknowledge that. But the hope that we have, and dear Christian, it is a beautiful hope. The hope that we have is that God has called us not to a one and done, but to a lifestyle of repentance. And when we repent, even if we are that moth caught in the web, ultimately through his rejuvenating, resurrecting power, he enables that which is dead to come alive again. He flips that switch so that the power of the light no longer disorients us. So that our way, which is perverted naturally, which the enemy will wrought with, with spiders and, and predators, ultimately, God sets us on the path of Christ and of his unfailing love. And so, first, if you're here this morning and you have never repented, perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, and everything that I've just said to you sounds like a bunch of hocus-pocus. Let me just say that you can repent. That from the depths of the love of the heart of God comes this beautiful, idyllic confession and repentance. And that you can cry out to him for mercy. He will forgive. He will restore. As he promised to do, in verse 22, when he says, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. He doesn't just change our hearts so that we're now we're on a different path. No, he heals the faithlessness. And he sets us on the path that he has ordained for us to walk. And secondly, if you're a Christian, and you realize that all of us are daily encountered with voices that yell, This is the way. Do this. Do that. Ignore this, it's not that bad. That you and I, in a spirit of humility, need to incorporate repentance into our daily lives. We need to capture, by God's grace, repentance. Not simply verbal repentance, an acknowledgement that, yes, I've done wrong, God forgive me. But true, sincere repentance that detests that which God detests. And that cries out in the mercy of the Holy Spirit. Break up the fallow ground in my heart. Last week, Pastor Robert concluded a sermon series on conflict resolution in the church. And one of the points was that when we sin against our brother, or when our brother sins against us and they repent, Christ said, forgive them till 70 times 7. An infinite number, you might say, during the course of a day. It's helpful to keep in mind what repentance, biblical repentance, looks like. Not for our own sake alone, but for the sake of one another. That we might walk hand in hand realizing the call that we have as Christians. The call that we have as a city on a hill. And that we might represent to the world the dominion of God in the earth. So let me encourage you. Recapture repentance. Make it part of your lifestyle. Make it part of your daily prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who died, who convicts through the Holy Spirit, the power that rose Christ from the dead, that raised Christ from the dead. Our hearts are convicted of sin and transgression. 
Father, we ask that you would create within each of us a lifestyle of repentance so that we could truly be a relevant voice of prophecy to the world in which we live. We ask, O oh God, that you would free us from the web that the enemy has set for us. Redeem us from our own tendency to encircle an artificial light. Fill us with your spirit. Enable us, empower us to walk in the spirit so that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.